So in the story of Samson, we see that although Manoah and his wife eventually see this angel of the Lord, they fall down and they worship him. They have an awesome experience with God. We see that much of the pagan practices and understanding of the culture had influenced their understanding of the one true God. Therefore, Samson is not a man who demonstrates knowledge of God, a desire for the heart of God. He doesn't exhibit godly character or godly traits. A guy by the name of Don Carson says like this, the stories about Samson show that he was a judge who avenged only personal grievances and chased women instead of enemies. We'll see that Samson is vengeful, he's violent, he's impulsive, he's immature, he's selfish. And although Judges 13 ended with the birth of Samson, he's born to Manoah's wife, this woman who was barren but received this gift. And the last verse of Judges 13.25 says, The Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. We would think, all right, sweet. The Spirit of the Lord is at work here, he's stirring Samson, he's about to get ready to go to battle. He's going to rally the troops. Here we go, Samson. Let's do this. That's where we might think the story's going. But we look at Judges 14 and we see he's chasing a woman. He's more concerned about getting a wife than delivering the people from the Philistines. Instead, this Judge Samson is more concerned about getting a Philistine woman. And Judges 14.1, it says, Samson comes down to Timnah, which is an important, a big Philistine city. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. He comes up, he told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Now all culture is a little different than this culture, right? Now this would kind of be rude for us if you were to go to your parent and say, Dad, Mom, I found this person. Get her for me as my spouse. Right? My parents would have said, get it yourself, okay? <laughs> but in this time and culture, it was, there was arranged marriages. So the parents would get the spouse of the child, the, the son. The daughter or the son. But it was the parents' choosing. And more specifically, it was the dad's choice. And what's interesting about this is, as Nathan preached about two weeks ago from Judges 13... As the people of the Lord are oppressed by the Philistines, they don't even cry out to God for deliverance. Seemingly, they are so influenced and so inundated by these Philistine cultures that they've kind of lost God. They've lost his word and his will. And, and if you know anything about the scriptures or about the, the rules for the Jews, they weren't supposed to marry those outside of the faith, outside of the covenant family. So this would have been disrespectful and rude against their culture and tradition, which the marriages were arranged by the parents. And it was also against God's law. Deuteronomy 7.3 says, You shall not intermarry with them, referring to those outside other nations. Exodus 34.16 warns the people of marrying outside the covenant because it will lead to breaking the covenant. It will lead to worshiping other gods and false gods. And it, this wasn't necessarily about race. It wasn't as if God was against interracial marriage. He was about remaining keeping his people faithful to the covenant. This was what Manoah and his wife are getting at with Samson when they say, isn't there someone among the daughters of our relatives, among our people, not among the uncircumcised Philistines? Circumcision was a symbol of being a part of the covenant family of God. It's very similar to along the lines of how Paul writes to the church in Corinth, not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
when you have a Christian and a non-Christian or a God-fear and a non-God-fear, there's going to be this tension in the marriage. And one person is going to compromise. And this is what happens all throughout the history of the Israelites. When they intermarry with, with people outside of their faith, outside of their covenant, it leads to leaving God, rebelling against God, worshiping false gods, committing sinful practices. And here in Judges, all the way now in Judges 14, we have a judge who instead of seeking to deliver God's people from the enemies, he's wanting to marry one. And we see all throughout Judges that it's a downward cycle going like this. Okay? The first judge, Othniel, is highlighted and contracted against this guy, Samson. Othniel was a good guy. He delivered the people. The Spirit of the Lord was with him, and he married a, a faithful, God-fearing woman. And here we have Samson, the last judge in Judges, marrying a, a pagan, a Philistine woman, someone outside the covenant, breaking God's law and dishonoring his father and mother. But Samson doesn't care what his parents have to say. He disregards what they say and says, in the end of verse 3, Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Now this is an interesting phrase. I think it lines up with what we see throughout the book of Judges, where it's the phrase, Again, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's opposite to God's law. It's self-centered and sinful. It's ultimately what Samson wants. This phrase introduced us to a phrase that we'll see later in Judges and uh, chapter 18, verse 1, and verse 19, and chapter 25, verse 21, the very last sentence in the book of Judges is this, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's kind of introducing us to this phrase and concept throughout Judges. And this is what sin does. This is how it deceives us. It turns truth upside down. And suddenly there's no right or wrong as described in God's word or by his will, the, the culture determines what's right or wrong. Everyone determines what's right and wrong in his own eyes. And when you realize this and think about this, it's kind of similar to our culture, isn't it? Over the thousands of years, not much has changed about humanity and our hearts <laughs> and the way that we want to define truth for ourselves. Right, we live in a culture that's about finding your truth. And if someone disagrees with your truth, they're wrong. You don't let anyone, you find this truth from within, you put it out there, and no one can disagree with you. Right? Isn't that our culture? Yeah. Doing what's right in your own eyes. Can't tell anyone that you're right or wrong. But just like in the time of Judges, this is against the truth of God's word. And the Bible and God is there. He is an ultimate reality. He is an ultimate truth. There is right and wrong. And it's defined by God. The eyes who ultimately matter are God's. And although this move was for Samson was right in his eyes, ultimately it was wrong in God's eyes. But now after verse 3, we come to a very important verse, and the narrator gives some commentary about what God might be up to here. It says in verse 4, His father and mother did not know that this was from the Lord, for he, referring to the Lord, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Now, other translations will say it like this. The Lord was seeking to provide an opportunity for a confrontation. In other words, God was somehow using this to seek about confronting the Philistines. And it's almost like the, the people of Israel had been so kind of inundated by the Philistines and the pagan cultures that they didn't even realize how sinful or wicked they were. So God was going to have to bring a conflict between the two to bring about deliverance. It seems like that's what God is up to in this moment. 
And this seems like a key verse for the whole story of Samson. That although Samson's desire was to marry a Philistine woman, and that was wrong, that was against God's will and word, although he was disrespecting his parents by doing this, he was being impulsive. Despite all of this, God was using it for his purposes. It's fascinating. God was going to use Samson's sin, Samson's rebellion, to bring about confrontation between Israel and the Philistines. God was going to use this to begin the battle with God's enemies, although seemingly in this moment, no one really realizes that. His parents don't realize it, and I would find it hard to believe that Samson would realize this as well. Verse 5 continues, Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah. They came to the vineyards, which would be an interesting place for a Nazarite to be in a vineyard. This may not be something the narrator was trying to highlight, but it might be showing us how Samson was not really faithful to his vow. He, and we'll see this clearly in the, in the couple more verses that follow. But he comes to these vineyards, and behold, a young lion comes roaring at him. And the narrator describes that the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him, and though he had nothing in his hand, no weapon, no tool, he tears this lion apart as one tears a young goat. Now, if you're like me and you're reading this, you're thinking, how does one tear a young goat? <laughs> Never done that. But sometimes it's helpful to read other translations, and other translations will say, uh, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him that they tore apart the lion with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. So if this is Samson, he's really strong, big. He tore it really easily. That's kind of what the narrator is getting at. He tore it just as easily. This lion, this ferocious animal, he rips it apart like a little goat. As graphic as that seems. Anyways. This is, the not time, this is not the first time we've seen this phrase, the Spirit of the Lord coming upon someone or rushing upon someone or dwelling upon someone, empowering them. We saw this with Othniel in Judges 3.10. We saw it in Jephthah in Judges 11. We saw it with Gideon. We'll see this often in the story of Samson, the Spirit of the Lord is coming upon him, clothing him, stirring him, rushing upon him. The Spirit of God empowers him to do miraculous things. In this particular moment, it gives him miraculous strength to kill a lion with his bare hands. And the narrator confirms after this scene, he goes down to Timnah, he's seen the confirmation is there. Yes, this woman is right in my eyes. Let's start the wedding plans. Let's get this feast going. And Samson comes back to take his wife. He sees a swarm of bees in the dead body of the lion in the carcass. He's come back a few days later. He sees some honey and he scrapes the lion out of the carcass. Now, before we think, oh, this is barbaric and who would do this? That's gross. I mean, I don't really like food that's sitting out a day old. <laughs> Nevertheless, a couple days old in a dead body, I mean, that's, that seems crazy. But verse 9, it's important. He says, he did not tell his parents that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. And Samson didn't want to tell his parents because this contact with a dead lion would be in violation to his vow. The vow that the angel of the Lord told his parents was to be born. He was to avoid wine, drink no strong drink, eat nothing unclean. So he was violating that vow, and he doesn't tell his parents. Number six outlines this in more detail as well, that if you were under the Nazarite vow, you were not to touch a dead body. But the story continues in verse 10. They go down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there. And it's interesting, too, in the original language, the word feast suggests that there probably was wine at this event, which is another example of Samson not being very faithful to his vow, although it might not be explicit, we may have here another reference to Samson not treating his vow very seriously. This might be another implication that he violated his vow. And at the feast, 30 companions are brought to him. 
And Samson wants to have a little fun with them, it seems like. He says, let me put a riddle to you. And let's make this wager have some sort of value to it. Let's bet bet on 30 pieces of of clothes. Now, I don't know if it seems like it might have been an expensive wager because of the way that they reacted to his wife. It, It might have been more about the shame and honor in this society and and trying to keep a face. It could have been that they were trying to avoid shame and they were just trying to get rich in these garments. But either way, in this wager, if the 30 companions could not answer the riddle, they were to give Samson 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if they do answer the riddle, then Samson has to give them the clothes. And Samson agrees and they present a riddle like this in verse 14. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. In three days, they could not solve this riddle. On the fourth day, they sent to Samson's wife, entice your husband. Hey, you're close to him, but you're one of us. You're a Philistine. Do you want to impoverish us? That's what they say here they're getting at. You want to burn you and your father's house with fire? Have you invited us here to impoverish us? Samson's wife goes to Samson, weeps over him, says, you only hate me. You don't love me. Seems like she's trying to manipulate him and get him to tell him the, the riddle. You've put a riddle to my people. You've not told me what it is. He says, why am I going to tell you? I haven't even told my father or my mother. And she weeps before him seven days. Now, I don't know about you, but that would be annoying. <laughs> Samson's wife weeps before Samson seven days that their feast lasted. On the seventh day, finally, he's finally gives in. She's got him finally. She pressed him hard, verse 17 says. And then she told the riddle to her people, and the men of the city said to him, on the seventh day before the sun went down, just before they were able to, they just squeaked it in at the last moment. What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? He said to them, if you'd not plowed with my heifer. Now, I don't know what that means. Seems like it's derogatory in its course. It, in, my, in my studies, you know, heifers weren't usually used for plowing, so Samson's getting out here, you tricked me, uh, you manipulated me. Uh, the gist of what he's saying here is the answer doubtless came from my bride-to-be. Okay? But we know that Samson at this point hasn't proven himself to be that much of a man of character. It seems like a derogatory course thing to say. You not plow with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. In verse 19, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him again. He went down to Ashkelon. He struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And the kicker, verse 20, Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. That's a lot of drama, right? That's just how the chapter ends. That's where we're going to stop and then talk about what we can learn from this story. So we've got Samson lusting after a woman he shouldn't have been. He's maybe playing around with his vow. He's going in vineyards. He's eating honey from dead carcasses. He's killing a lion with his bare hands. He's presenting riddles. He's being manipulated by his wife. He's getting really angry and killing 30 people, but the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him to do this. His wife is given to his best man. Wow. This is like some sort of drama, soap opera. I don't know what's going on here. This is the Bible. What do we do with this? Now, if you're skeptical, you might think, well, these are just some simple fairy tales. They're fables. 
these things didn't actually happen. They're tall tales, you know. But if Jesus really did raise from the grave on the third day, then certainly God is able to do anything. The supernatural is natural for God. His, his spirit and power can part seas. He can cause people to do incredible things like tear lions apart with bare hands. And if we believe that the Bible is God's word for us, what do we do with Judges 14? Now, we've worked through the chapter and looking at some historical and cultural elements, but now we kind of want to take a step back and look at the chapter as a whole. What is this chapter teaching us, showing us? What can we learn from it? What's the point of this chapter? What characteristic of God is this highlighting? What can we learn? And, and the way we've been thinking about how to get these main points and principles out of the passages through Judges is by looking at a series of questions, a series of questions that are found uh, on the back of the handout you might have received this morning in the sermon outline. The first question goes like this. What does this story proclaim about God and his relationship with his people? What, could this story, what is this story showing us about God and how he interacts with his people? And as mentioned before, we see that the Spirit of God rushes upon Samson to kill a lion with his bare hands. We see the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon him to kill 30 men, right? And these are the explicit places where God or the Spirit of God is, explicit, is mentioned. So is this passage teaching us that God wants us to kill lions with their bare hands or kill 30 people and take their money? Is this what the Spirit of God causes people to do? Now, certainly we can conclude from the story that when the Spirit of God empowers someone and, and clothes someone, rushes upon them, they can do supernatural things. Certainly we can conclude that from this story. But the reality of, well, does that mean I can always just tear lions apart? And man, let's go out and tear some lions apart and kill 30 people with, by the Spirit rushing upon me and taking their garments and clothes. We would see depending on the rest of God's word, how that lines up with his word. That, that's not what the story is teaching us, I don't think. I believe to really understand Judges 14, we have to take a good look at verse 4. Judges 14.4 seems to be the verse that the story of Samson hangs on. It's a crucial verse in understanding the whole story of Samson. Verse 4 seems to explain how all this craziness, this impulsiveness, these weaknesses of Samson actually are a fulfillment of the, to the promise that the angel of the Lord gave Manoah's wife in Judges 13.5. Judges 13.5 says this, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Right, so that's the promise from the angel of the Lord given to Samson's parents, Manoah and his wife, about Samson. So the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson in verse 6 and in verse 19 to accomplish God's will and plan as mentioned in Judges 14, 4. And Judges 14, 4 shows us that God works out all things in accordance with his perfect plan and will. God's plan is not frustrated. All things work out in accordance with his pleasure and, and purpose and will. But as we press deeper into this truth, we see that God not only uses sinners in the accomplishment of his plan, he not only uses them to fulfill his promises, to fulfill what he said would be true, he not only uses sinners in spite of their sin, but through their sin. Despite Samson's impulsiveness, despite his sin, despite his rebellion against God and his word, God intended to use Samson and his weaknesses for his purpose. 
even in his rebellion, God uses Samson. So the answer to the question of what does this story proclaim about God and his relationship with people, I think, is that God uses sinners and their sin in accordance with his perfect and sovereign plan. Now, if that's not confusing or that's not kind of mind-blowing, that doesn't kind of put your head in a spin, you're a lot smarter than I am, I guess. I don't get this. I'm just going to be frank with you. Because this does not mean that God is somehow responsible for evil or that he causes people to sin, but he, use, he factors that into his plan to accomplish his purpose. He does not cause humans to sin. He, does, he is not responsible for evil. God is perfectly good, but in his sovereignty and in the mystery of how he accomplishes his plan, he uses human sin, human arrogance, human mistakes to accomplish his wise purpose. That's amazing. That's what I think the story is showing us. What God uses all of this in Judges 14 with this Philistine woman as a means of a way of creating conflict between the people of Israel and the people of the Philistines. As a way of beginning deliverance from the Philistines who are ruling over Israel. God uses Samson in, not only in spite of his sin, but through his sin. And this is a mysterious act of God's grace to begin about bringing deliverance through bad people who are unaware, who are doing bad things. But as we take this story out of Judges, we see how it connects with the larger story of the Bible. That's how we're, we're seeking to answer that second question in your handout. We see this is something that God does all throughout the history of redemption. God uses humans in spite of their sin and through their sin. The story is, is this theme, this truth is seen in the story of a guy named Joseph. Joseph was one of the 12 sons of a guy named Jacob. And Jacob had a special relationship with his son, Joseph. He gave him this, this cool, special coat. And Joseph's brothers got jealous of him. Joseph already also started having these dreams about how his brothers were going to serve him. And they didn't like that. So they were angry at Joseph. They wanted to get rid of him. They throw him into a pit. He later gets sold into slavery. But God blesses him and is with him and is gracious to him, and he, raises, he rises up to second in command in Pharaoh's court. And in the midst of all this, God gives Joseph dreams and revelations about how to provide for his people, and that's just going to be great famine coming, so he stores up food, and he actually provides for his family, his brothers, that threw him into a pit, that sold him into slavery, that left him for dead. He provides for them in a, in a way to kind of keep on the line of the people of Israel. And I love this verse in Genesis 50, 20, after uh, Jacob dies and Joseph's brothers think, oh, Joseph's going to pay us back for everything that we did to Joseph, and he's going to enact justice upon him. Joseph says this, which I think is an important verse that, that will hold us and that we can cling to. Joseph says, as for you, referring to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So we see God factoring in humanity, not only in spite of their sin, but through their sin to accomplish his plan. And of course, in the center of redemptive history, we see that this is probably more clearly seen and more ultimately seen in the story of Jesus. 
the perfect plan and will of God for the salvation of humanity, the redemption of his people in his glorious grace, the rescue of sinners from sin and Satan and death was fulfilled not only in spite of human sin, but through it. Jesus came as the Son of God, living a a perfect life, a life that was perfect in line with the will of God, in line with the word of God. He was not impulsive and selfish. He was not disrespectful or disobedient to his parents. He was not dishonoring to God. He obeyed God's word perfectly. When he was sinned against and people mistreated him, he did not respond in anger. He did not respond in reviling back or enacting justice upon them. As the son of God, he had compassion and he forgived his enemies. He didn't even open up his mouth. He continually entrusted him to his Father in heaven. He had compassion on his enemies and he loved his enemies. And although this innocent man died a criminal's death, it was all according to the perfect plan and foreknowledge of God. This was not somehow a a mistake that, oh no, Jesus was captured and crucified and what are we going to do? This was not God's backup plan for the the rescue of humanity. This was all in accordance with his perfect plan and will. And after Jesus died, he he was in the grave three days and he rose again and he he sent the Holy Spirit to fill his people, to bring remembrance of the truth and to act as his witnesses, spreading the hope and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ all throughout the earth. And in Acts chapter two, this guy named Peter gets up and he tells a sermon. And he says this, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see the reality of that truth coming to bear in this moment with Jesus? Jesus was crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, but it was not only in spite of human sin, but through it. God works through sin, through sinners and their sin. He works out all things according to the counsel of his will. So what do we do about this? Question three, what exhortation or admonition does this story offer? What warning or call or command or encouragement is this story calling us to? I think we could look at this passage and, and highlight the power of the Holy Spirit. And how we need the Spirit's power in our life to do things and, and, and work and do spirit supernatural things. Or you could highlight the importance of listening to your parents, listening to godly advice. You could draw out the problems of anger and fits of rage and the problems that that creates. But in view of what we've seen of the importance of verse 4, where that God was working all of this to confront the Philistines. What does the story of the mystery of God's will working through sinners and sin, what does God's grace working out and bringing salvation of those who aren't even aware of what he's doing, what does that call us to do? What do we do with that? We rest in grace. When we think about this reality, we we know in our life how God has been so gracious to us and is working in our life when we are totally ignorant of it. And that's his grace. 
we know based on this reality that our past sins and mistakes are failures. Don't frustrate God's plan. Don't frustrate his purposes. He's all sovereign. We can cling to this reality in Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That is a huge promise to rest in. That should bring rest and comfort to our soul. That when we turn from our sins and confess our sins before God, that it is only by his grace that we do that. That when we remain faithful to Christ and obey his commandments, it is only by his grace that we are faithful. That as we continue and long to be with him one day, we are kept faithful by his grace. That leads to rest and to worship. We think about this reality and when we ask God for mercy and forgiveness, we don't have to worry or cower in shame and fear and guilt that God will somehow hold our sins against us. We think about the reality of God and his awesome plans and perfect provision. His grace even uses our sins to bring about good. That's humbling, I think. My friends, if you are a Christian and you turn from your sins, you've believed in Jesus, you've counted the cost, his grace has transformed your life, you've submitted your dreams, your desires, your life to his lordship and leadership, we get a peace that passes understanding. God works out all things for good. So the story calls us to rest in grace. And as sweet and as praiseworthy and as that should cause our hearts to worship God and praise him for what he's done to us and how good he is to us in which we don't deserve, all the ways we can't even think about because we don't realize how gracious God has been to us in our ignorance, I think it would be foolish to take from this passage, sweet, obedience doesn't matter. I mean, Samson was sinful and wicked and yet God is somehow using this for good. Obedience doesn't matter. Grace, bro. Right? We were thought like this or talked with people who think like this, maybe not explicitly, but implicitly. Right? Although the story shows us that God is gracious, He's mysterious and working through sin, it does not mean that God is responsible for evil or He does not hold His people accountable for sin. It does not mean that God doesn't care about obedience. We would be contradicting the will of God to conclude from this story that since God works out all things according to his plan, that somehow our sin doesn't have consequences, that somehow obedience doesn't matter, and and God is like, free pass, do whatever you want. The idea or thought of, oh, well, God is gracious with me, so it doesn't really matter how I live. There's some commands of Christ that make me kind of uncomfortable. I'll get to those later. God's gracious with me. I believe that leads to a cheapening of God's grace where we live as if his grace hasn't transformed us and called us to glorify the Father. And and grace doesn't do this in our life if we've really experienced it. It doesn't lead to a lackadaisical attitude towards it. It doesn't lead to cheapening grace. But imagine if, imagine if, uh, for me, for a second, if you're married, you have a spouse, you cheat on your spouse, you're unfaithful to your partner. And that devastates your spouse. I can't imagine how devastating that would be for my wife, Stephanie. 
I'm unfaithful. I break the covenant with her. I am with another woman. And Stephanie is crushed by that. But she prays. She talks with godly counsel. She comes back to me and says, Daniel, I still love you and I want to be with you. I'm going to have grace on you. I'm going to give you a good thing that you don't deserve. Now, do you think if I really understood that and took that to heart and I love Stephanie, I would say, sweet, I'm going to hook up with three other women. To me, that would not demonstrate I've been experienced that grace or I love my wife. And for us to have this kind of attitude of God is gracious to us, but it doesn't really matter how we live. I'll pick and choose the commandments I want to obey. Obedience, eh, I'll I'll get to that later. It shows the idea that do we really understand God's grace? Do we really understand the purpose of it and what it calls us to do? Because grace is not a pass at the commands of Christ. Grace is not a license to sin. Grace is a power that causes us to obey Christ. God's grace is what brought about our salvation. God's grace saved us from past sin. God's grace causes us to fight present sins and obey God's commands. To say, I won't obey this command because God has grace on me shows, I think, a fundamental misunderstanding of the character of God, the power of grace, or his holiness, because grace is not a pardon for sin, it's a power to overcome sin. Amen? Amen. Paul writes it like this in 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. See how that's working? Paul's working hard because of grace. But he understands and realizes it's grace that brought him to who he is. By the grace of God, I am who I am, but I work harder than any of them. But it's not me, it's grace. Paul is describing that's God's grace that causes us to work hard. Grace is power for obedience, not just pardon for sin. And to summarize how I think these beautiful realities of resting in God's grace and working hard for his glory, working and obeying his commandments, having power over sin and seeking to obey him, is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Many of you are very familiar with this verse, but when you factor how these three verses come together, I think it's very beautiful in a way to wrap up this sermon. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I pray in light of this story of Samson in Judges 14, the reality of God's grace, the the mystery of working all things in spite of sinners and through their sin, that we would rest in his grace but that we would work for his glory. That we would see and be transformed by this grace that's not just a pardon for sin, it is a power for obedience, it's a power to overcome sin. I pray as we press into this deeper that we would be marked by deep trust and peace and comfort and rest in the amazing grace of God. But I pray that like the Apostle Paul, we would, as we press into grace, we would work harder than any of them that we would see that grace is a power that fuels our obedience and fuels our working for the glory of God, for our joy and the joy of others.
Do you trust in his grace and see it in the story? Do you see the grace of God shown to you in Christ? I pray that you'll worship Jesus with me now. Let's pray.